Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 10th, 2012. Tonight I'm here with Sword Brethren to present the second installment of my series against the Paul Bashers. Last week we began a presentation of arguments against the Paul Bashers, the fools who would rashly throw the epistles of, the epistles of Paul out of the Bible simply because the mainstream universalist theologians had perverted those epistles, distorted their context, and have offered us very bad translations. The main, the, the, they mistranslate verses simply because without a racial context, they cannot understand them. And many of the Paul Bashers buy those mistranslations. And then, because of them, they reject Paul. I can, and I already have in several different ways over the course of my ministry, offer a dozen passages in Paul, all which lead to universalism the way the King James Version and other versions have translated them, which is so badly translated that there is no academic excuse whatsoever for what amounts to little but treachery against God and gospel. Hello, Sword Brethren. How are you doing today? Hello. I'm, I'm well yourself. Fine. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on tonight. It was around two years ago that the Paul bashing Jerry Kirk, he, he's a UCC lawyer, wannabe lawyer type from Florida, Jerry Kirk came into the Christogenia.net TeamSpeak chat server. Kirk was invited by a community participant. And not long after he got there, he launched a diatribe against Paul of Tarsus that consisted of layer upon layer of bad history, bad Greek, bad scriptural interpretation, faulty premises, and even faultier conclusions. Kirk would not stop to listen to one of my corrections. People with agendas usually don't like to listen to alternative viewpoints. Being the sort of man who justifies himself and who does not really know the first word concerning Scripture. I tried to be fair with him to no avail, and unfortunately, I had to give him a gutter-level tongue lashing, and he hit the eject button because he just wasn't hearing it. Kirk is just representative of most of the Paul bashers that I have met. They are justified in their ends, no matter what means they use to get there. In truth, not one of them actually knows what they are talking about, and they play right into the hands of the Jew. To reject Paul of Tarsus, one must reject all of the writings of Luke and the second epistle of Peter. In fact, one even has to reject the revelation of Joshua Christ. One, and, and those things will be proven in this series. One should think about it long and hard before rejecting Paul of Tarsus for many reasons. All of the Paul bashers that I have met hypocritically quote from Luke and Peter. That they, They'll quote from Peter and, and then they'll reject Paul when Peter testifies of Paul. They'll quote from Luke. They love to quote Luke 19.27 or, or um, Luke 10, 18, and 19, and, and, and then that, that they hypocritically reject Paul and Luke testified to Paul. It, it's incredible. 
This series is based on papers, as I explained last week, that I wrote for Clifton Emma Heiser's Watchman's Teaching Letters in 2005 and early 2006. Following that material, we began by presenting the Paul bashing criticisms of the so-called Dr. H. Graber. I don't even know his first name. It could be Jaime or Huckster or whatever. In, in his December 1985 Kingdom Courier newsletter, which were also a part of his book entitled How Holy Is Your Bible. It will take several weeks to present this material from Graber before moving on to another Paul Basher, the fool Clayton Douglas, who, who published a series of articles bashing Paul, and he published them in his own name, but he didn't even write them. Other people wrote them for him, and, and I learned that much later on. Do you have anything to interject? Well, I've tried to track down this character's record to find out what kind of PhD he had, if he's still alive. Right. Yeah, Graber. I can't even verify that this man is still alive, let alone, you know, where he was last living. So it's theoretically possible that there is nobody out there by the name of H. Graber, that it's just a pen name he assumed, and he styles himself a doctor, and I, I don't know if this man is alive or dead. I can't figure it out. Well, well, I don't know. I really don't know. His actually, I I found um, last week from the um, from the internet that he was actually a, a member of the Church in Christ in Israel, the same church that ordained me in December of two thousand, and, and that church was headed at the time by Frank Smith, who was in um, I think it was. Winslow, Maine. I, I might have that wrong. It was a small town in Maine, and and I don't. He he was very sick the last I heard, and I don't know if he's still alive. He's quite elderly, and and um, I think I heard he moved to Texas. And anyway, it's immaterial that the Paul Bashers are just wrong, and and these. But when we present the rest of the series, it it'll it should become more and more evident to anybody that that um is listening who is of a reasonable mind that the Paul bashers are twisting practically all of scripture in order to make a case against Paul of Tarsus. It's easier just to study Paul in the correct context and understand that Paul was the glue that stuck the new covenant promise to Israel onto the nations of Israel. And Paul knew it. And, and just because mainstream Catholics all the way back to the fourth century, third century didn't know it, that, well, that's not Paul's fault. Not at all. That, that blindness of Israel that was imposed by Yahweh upon Israel as a punishment for their sin. And um, that that's part of that 2,500 years of that seven times of punishment they were promised. And it's time to lift the veil, but our people are going to have to... Um, that, that things are going to have to get worse yet before they get better. It's the veil won't be lifted until our people repent. That that's the way it is. Two Chronicles seven fourteen. Okay, to continue where we left off last week, I, I'm going to again discuss Graver's lies concerning Galatians four fourteen in in brief. Um, Graver had had um 
I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Let, let me quote Galatians 4.14 from the Christogenian New Testament first, from my own translation, where Paul says, And of my trial in the flesh you did not despise or loathe, but as a messenger of Yahweh you accepted me like Yahshua Christ. First, I, I must say that it may be proven, and, and we could start by reading Galatians 4.15, right? That Paul's trial in the flesh, I've seen a lot, of, a, a lot of people really screw this one up, even though it's right in front of their faces. Paul's trial in the flesh was actually his failed eyesight. It probably had something to do with his road to Damascus experience where he was temporarily blinded. And, and um, when we read Galatians 4.15, that's pretty simple to understand when Paul says to the Galatians, then what is your blessing? I testify to you that, if possible, your eyes being extracted, you would have given them to me. In other words, Paul's commending these people for being so generous that they'd have given him their eyes so that he could see. And in Galatians 6.11, in, in the very end of the epistle, in the salutation, somebody else penned the rest of the epistle for Paul. Paul writes the salutation, and in the salutation he says, Do you see in how large letters I have written to you in my own hand? In other words, he had to write large letters because he couldn't see normal size letters. And, and that's um, pretty clear that Paul's trial in the flesh was his failed eyesight. Graeber had criticized Paul for elevating himself to the position of Christ, as he claimed. Here in Galatians 4.14, Paul was commending the Galatians for treating him respectably, even though he had a serious disability. The Greeks traditionally put a strong emphasis on physical perfection, and any physical peculiarity or disability was scorned. Paul is not elevating himself to the position of Christ but rather is commending the Galatians for abiding by the words of Christ, which we see expressed in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, where it says, He that receives you receives me. And Brian, if you're a Christian and I treat you well, that means that I'm treating, it's the equivalent of treating Christ well. That's right. the point Paul's trying to make. It's pretty simple, and Graeber is totally misreading that because he wants to find any accusation he can to throw at the Apostle Paul in order to discredit him. And I think that that's a very unfair assessment, and that Graeber makes himself into a liar for making that assessment. And um, he obviously doesn't know his scripture. The Jews did the same thing to Christ. Well, well, if you don't have any comment on that or anything well, to add, would you rather read... Um, well, he, he did say that Whatever you do that at least to his brothers, you do to him. Exactly, and that's another that that's another verse that can be pointed out, where Paul, which shows that Paul is commending the Galatians for sticking to that Christian philosophy. That's all he's doing. He's not elevating himself to Christ. He he's commending the Galatians for treating him as if they would have treated Christ himself. So what do the Paul bashers like to claim that the trial in the flesh was? Well, well, you know, I, I haven't seen that from Paul bashers, really, and, but I have seen that 
from mainstream, um, I don't want to call them theologians, from mainstream charlatans who, who want to um, uphold every sort of sexual deviancy, right? John Spong actually tried to make the claim that this is the, and, and we're going to get into John Spong later in this series, big time. We're, we're going to really stick the microscope into um, John Spong's private life. John Spong was an Episcopalian bishop. He was a, um, he was at the vanguard of, of the so-called civil rights movement and, and the move in, in the 1950s to put Negroes into white schools, right? And he he was at the vanguard of that in North Carolina, actually. And he was made the bishop of Newark, New Jersey, a city which I grew up near and, and which happened to have been about 80 or 90% black in, in the 60s, right? And John Spong was an Episcopalian bishop in Newark, New Jersey through the 60s and 70s. And he was the first Episcopalian bishop to ordain sexually deviant homosexual ministers, which caused a huge split in the Episcopalian church. And in order to uphold the idea that sexual deviants can participate in the church, he tried to make the claim, and he wrote books about this, and, and articles that were published and, and well-received in certain circles, of course. And, and, and he tried to make the claim that Paul's trial in the flesh was a, a penchant for young men and that Paul was a sexual deviant. Well, that's disgusting. And the only person who would try to make that claim would be someone who has that issue himself. Absolutely. Well, well what happened with John Spong was that he was married and he had two daughters. And... In his later years, when his daughters were teenagers, his wife got very sick. And during that period when his wife was sick, John Spong had a homosexual epiphany. And, and that's when he, he started to beat the drum for um, the acceptance of sexual deviance in, in the church and in public life. What does a homosexual epiphany mean? He, he finally felt comfortable coming out of the closet? Right. That's my point, right? <laughs> he, he either had a, an experience which changed his mind or he saw the, the darkness in, in some other way, right? But, but that's when he, he, he changed and, and tried to say that, you know, it's not Adam and Eve, it's Adam and Steve, and that's okay. Normally, people have an epiphany in a positive manner. You know, they, they put down the bottle, they stop using dope, they, do, they turn their life around, they do something positive. So he, he's trying to claim that what God led him to the light of homosexuality. Well, well when we address the, the Paul-bashing articles and, and assertions of Clayton Douglas, the, the Manzer bastard from Arizona, then we will understand that the Paul-bashers get and, and W.G. Finley from South Africa, right? And, and then we will understand that the Paul bashers get most of their ammunition against Paul and most of their accusations come right from two sources. The first source is used and quoted and admitted by W.G. Finley, the, the South African pastor, if I have to call him that, who's a Paul basher. And, and his primary source is, and it's admitted by him, is a rabbi named Jaquan Prince. Jaquan Prince is the chief rabbi of a large synagogue 
in Newark, New Jersey. Okay? Now, Clay Douglas admitted getting a lot of his Paul bashing material from John Spong, who was the bishop of the Episcopalian Church in Newark, New Jersey. Do you get the connection? Absolutely. John Prince, the Jew rabbi, W.G. Finley, the Paul bashing um, Christ, so-called Christian pastor, admitted using Jocelyn Prince time and again as his source for anti-Paul material, and, and Clayton Douglas, who printed somebody else's articles in his own name, and actually some of those articles come from a clown named, um, some of the sources come from a clown named Brother Nazariah, or, or, or that he calls himself that, he's probably some Jew, and, and, and Joseph Jeffers, who, who's a clown who, who, who swore that Christ lived 100 years before he actually did. And, and um, Jeffers was an idiot, and there's a lot of faults with him. Well, well um, he, he tried to invent his own Christianity, right? Well, well um, the, these people admit getting their material from John Spong, who, who, who's a, a sexual deviant and, and a promoter of um, civil rights for, for Negroes. And I don't know how you give civil rights to somebody, to, to a race that's never been civilized. And... Um, and a, a promoter of all kinds of sexual deviancy and, and forcing homosexuality upon a Christian church. And, and, and these idiot Paul bashers see this as a legitimate source for, for material about Paul and the Bible. The bottom line is this, that, that John Spahn wants to promote homosexuality in, in Christianity. He has to get rid of Paul because the only place that homosexuality is condemned in the New Testament Okay, not in the Bible, of course, it's condemned in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. But in the New Testament, the only place that, that, that sexual deviant acts, sexually deviant acts between men are condemned are in the letters of Paul of Tarsus. Right. Well, explicitly, but I'd say it's implicitly condemned when uh, Jesus is talking and teaching, and he said, for this cause will the man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It doesn't say the man's going to leave his father and mother and cleave to some guy down the street. Well, well if you're a Jew, the guy down the street can be a wife, right? It don't really matter, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, it don't matter. Well, well right. And, and Christ, of course, Christ came to uphold the law and the prophets, right? He, he, of course, he would have condemned sexual deviancy. However, in the gospel, the issue was never raised. So there was no opportunity to condemn it. Well, why would it be raised? I mean, it's, it's implicitly understood by everybody. I mean, if Luke came up and said, oh, master, teacher, are, are men allowed to sodomize men now? Is there a new law? You know, I'm sure Jesus probably would have slapped him at that point and said, where'd you get that notion? Yeah, right. Well, absolutely. It's, it's absurd. But the, the issue did come up. Paul brought the issue up and condemned it explicitly in um, Romans chapter 1. And 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 the the um, the fashion in Rome was that sexual deviancy was publicly accepted and and very frequently conducted in in public and and that yet you know Tacitus the great um, Roman chronicler he wasn't really a historian he was a chronicler he had made a remark in Germania. In, in chapter 10 of the Germania, in reference to the Germans, saying that they did not think it fashionable to engage in, in sexually deviant acts 
And, and when he made that remark in the Germania, it, it's basically a reflection on Rome and, and, and support or, or corroboration of Paul's attitude in Romans chapter 1 that sexual deviancy had become the fashion in Rome. I don't remember Tacitus' exact words. Uh, I can only paraphrase it, but basically he said that they do not engage in sexual devi sexually deviant acts and consider them modern or fashionable. So, so the problems that we have, cultural problems that we have in, in this country, in this modern time, that, that um, you know, when you disdain sexual deviancy, you're considered old-fashioned. Well, well, we see that was Tacitus's problem also, right? right? Well, that, don't the deviants not, always style themselves as progressive, cutting-edge, the vanguard of a new society? So, so the root of Paul bashing are basically fags and Jews. When you trace the root, to the, Paul bashing to the root, you find fags and Jews. Jacqueline Prince and John Spong being the the the, um, the vanguard among them, being the pinnacle of, of, of the Paul bashers, and and they admitted the Paul Christian Paul bashers who admit getting their material from, from Jacqueline Prince, W. G. Finley in South Africa, he should be totally discredited immediately as soon as he cites his source. But they all buy into it. It's incredible how many people buy into that garbage. Okay, let's um let's get on with with, with Jaime Graber here. Jaime Graber, shall I read reference G? Well, well, I don't know his first name, but his initials H and Jaime Fitz. <laughs> word, Graber states, "Word of God, first to the Jews." In the above scriptures, Acts thirteen forty six through forty seven, Paul says that it was necessary that the word of God should first be preached to the Jews, Yehudai. Here we must understand that the words Jews and Israel are not synonymous. We read in 1 Corinthians 9.20, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. We have no evidence in the Bible that Jesus Christ ever done this. Those are his words, by the way, ever done this. He, okay, so he, he has grammar issues, but to continue. Ever done this. To the contrary, Jesus said, speaking of the Jews in Matthew 13.10-13, through 13, and the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. And I suppose with this guy, grammar just wasn't given unto him. Right. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seen see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Also in Matthew thirteen thirty-four through 35, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundations of the world. Does this sound like Jesus Christ was trying to gain the Yehudai Jews? Of course not. Jesus knew that the Jews are the children of the devil, as he tells us in John 8:44. We read in Jude 4, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly Jesus Christ knew who the Yehudai are, and I believe that the learned Paul did too. 
Well, 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 you know, his obvious error is what? He's confusing Judeans with Jews, right? That, that's his obvious error. Not everybody in Judean is, is what we would consider today to be a Jew. Jude 4 wouldn't just be referring to Jews. It would be referring to guys like that John Sprang, wouldn't it? John Spong, right. Yeah, huh. you know, I'm going to read my answer here. There's much deception on Graver's part here. First, Graver continues in good Catholic tradition, right? To, to confuse the Greek word eudahios, which is properly Judean, with the term Jew. And it, what, what we consider the, the Jew of today was not a Judean, and a Judean was not necessarily the Jew of today. Then, because Graver himself is confused, he accuses Paul of wanting to preach, and this is what he's inferring here, to Canaanites and Edomites. The, the Jews of today are descended from Canaanites and Edomites. Not every Judean was a Canaanite or an Edomite. Many of the Judeans were Israelites. Now, Paul explains thoroughly the difference between Jacob, Israel, and Esau, or Edom, in Romans chapter 9. So Paul knew the difference. Paul was very aware of those children of Cain masquerading as Judah. And he says so right in Acts, that same chapter that Graver quotes is Acts chapter 13, well, Paul basically demonstrates that awareness in Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 10, where, where, where he basically taught, it, it, he talks about um, the, the vagabond Jew and, and the false accuser. It, it's, um, well, well I'm, it's actually Luke, right? Luke's writing. And, and in Acts chapter 19 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where, where Paul points out, that, that um, those people sitting in the temple pretending that they are God are really Satan. They are really the adversary. And Paul makes that very clear in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Graeber doesn't criticize John. John recorded our Redeemer as saying, you worship what you know not, we know what we worship for salvation is, that now the Greek says salvation is of the Judeans. But the King James Version says salvation is of the Jews. So Graver holds John to a different standard than he holds Luke in his authorship of Acts, or Paul in the words which Luke records. I could write at length at why Paul felt that he had to bring the gospel to the Israelites, who at that time were calling themselves Judeans, who were under the law first who were mostly of true Judah and Benjamin. In fact, it, it's stated in Zechariah 12.7 that the tents of Judah would be saved first, that Judah would get the gospel first, if, if you want to consider that being saved or being um, called to that salvation in Christ, right? Judah and Benjamin would receive the gospel first and then bring it that Benjamin was supposed to be the light, right, in Scripture, who would bring that message to the lost nations, to the lost nations, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. To, to address Graver's duplicity in this paragraph, Paul spoke amongst the dispersion of Israel. Whether they were lost Israelites or whether they were Judeans alike, and he spoke to them in plain language. 
Yahshua spoke amongst the Judeans of Palestine, and he spoke to them in parables. Paul's mission was to live long enough to adequately spread the message of redemption among lost Israel. Yahshua Christ's mission was to announce that same gospel which Paul spread, he being its originator, and then to die at the hands of his enemy, of his enemies, and to live again, accomplishing our redemption. They had two different missions, and those two different missions required two different methods. Paul also used many parables and analogies in his letters, which Graver surely doesn't understand. But if he did, he wouldn't be critical of Paul. Well, Bill, how, how could he understand parables when he doesn't understand English spelling, grammar, and usage rules? How, how would he understand parables used by people who spoke Greek and Aramaic? Right. In, in, in Acts chapter 13, verses 46 and 47, and I'm going to read them from the Christianity New Testament. Paul is at a particular assembly hall. I don't really like to call it a synagogue. That's why it, the, the, word is, it, the word synagogue is really a Greek term, believe it or not. It's a compound word made out of three Greek words, soon, ago, and gase. And, and soon meaning with, and ago meaning to, to gather, and gase meaning a land. It really means at the gathering land at the gathering place, at the assembly ground. That's what it means to be together at the assembly ground, synagogue, soon ago gaze. It's a Greek term. It's not even Jewish or Hebrew or Yiddish. The, the, um, it, it's because of its true meaning, I translate it assembly hall everywhere in the Christogenian New Testament. Paul's at a particular assembly hall of Judeans, in a particular place in Greece, and if the, the, if the verses were translated properly in their context, Paul would be saying to the leaders of this assembly hall, to you it was necessary to speak the word of God first, since you have rejected him and judge yourselves not worthy of eternal life. Behold, we turn to the people. And then they begin from that time to address the common people of the assembly hall. And the veracity of that translation is clear in context where several times subsequent to that event, Paul is in other synagogues of the Judeans preaching to the Judeans. So you can't tell me that this is the point where Paul leaves the Jews and turns to the Gentiles. That's a false Jewish Catholic interpretation of Scripture. And Graeber has bought that interpretation and criticizes Paul for it. It's not Paul's fault that the, the, the Catholics and, and, and the, the mainstream theologians and the Jews all twist those words, and it's not Paul's fault that Paul's not understood. It's very clear to me what Paul's saying when we read the Bible in context. And we discussed that passage at length last week. So he buys into the standard Jewish claptrap nonsense that Jesus came for the Jews, the Jews wouldn't listen to him, so then he offered it to the Gentiles or the nations. Well, well absolutely. And if you understand 
the racial context of the covenants of the New Testament, the New Testament was only made for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And, and Graeber evidently understood that in the Old Testament. But if you understand that, and then you read the New Testament as the mainstream universalist theologians have interpreted it, then of course you're going to have problems with the New Testament because you're reading it through the perverted lens of the universalists. Right. Well, the first covenant was made for only our people, as was the second one. And since we broke the first covenant, we needed redemption. And some people come along after the fact who weren't part of the first deal, and they want to get on the second deal, the renewal of the old covenant, but they weren't part of the first covenant, so they're not invited to the second one. Well, well, right, exactly. The new covenant is absolutely exclusive to the genetic children of Israel. And if you understand that, and, and you go read the universalist translations, you're going to have problems. There are many places in Paul that seem to be universalist where, when properly translated, and I could go through the Greek word for word and validate every point that I have to make. Exactly. When well, properly translated, they are not universalist in nature. They are actually very exclusive in nature. I have to wonder, what do most mainstream people think Jesus came for? If he came to redeem people from their sin and save them from their sin, what is sin other than violating the law of God? And only people who were given the law could violate the law. And since the law wasn't given to the Cambodians or the Hottentots or the Bushmen, they weren't under any of the covenants, any of the laws of Moses, the Abrahamic covenant. They weren't under any of those laws. How could they be guilty of violating something that was never given to them? So why would they need redemption for violating a law that was never given to them? Well, well, absolutely. Yeah, you know, there's a point, a, a case in point, and, and it's a passage in Colossians, I believe. And, and Paul's telling the Colossians that, if you read the King James version, that they were aliens to the covenants <laughs> and 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 the um the the citizenship of of, of the kingdom under God. Well, well, the. The problem with that passage is that word aliens, which is a noun, right? If you read the Greek, it's a verb, and it's a past tense verb. Oh, so they were alienated from the covenant. They were alienated from the covenants and from the citizenship and the kingdom of, of God. They were alienated from it, which helps to prove, and, and history and archaeology complete the proof, that these people were part of those Israelites who were cast off by God back all the way back in the books of Kings and Chronicles for their sin. And the rest of Paul's epistle also proves that. All you have to do is change that one word to its proper translation as a past tense verb, and you learn that these people were alienated, and that's the Christian identity position. Well, how could you be alienated unless you were part of it to begin with? Well, well, right, exactly, and history will prove that they were. But when you read the, the, the mainstream translations, the King James Version, for instance, you'll see that they were aliens, and if you understand that the covenants are only for Israel, well, how is Paul included in these aliens? And exactly. if you don't study the Greek, you're going to blame Paul for that. But they change, a, they change a verb to a noun and cause all this doctrinal problem. Right. And, and it's not Paul's fault. It's not Paul's fault these bastards changed the verb to a noun. It's not Paul's fault, but that's what they did. And someone like Graeber 
I don't know if Graber could even define what a noun is and what a verb is. He, he certainly doesn't know how to use them in English, so he's not going to recognize that in you know the translations that somebody changed a verb to a noun, and that's why his Bible reads like it reads. Absolutely. Well, well I, I have a series, Errors Inspired by Who, on Kustagenia, three podcasts, which explain a lot of the plain errors in translation in the King James Version. And there's several times where the King James Version took a noun and translated it as a verb, or took a verb and translated it as a noun, and those mistranslations created exclude they created universalist interpretations of exclusivist passages. Right. And that's and it couldn't be a mistake, right? I mean would would highly learned scholars and scribes make those sort of simple mistakes? Well, well, it's not a mistake, but 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 there's a um, there's a there's a reason for the universalist misinterpretations, and, and that's because the Bible, the King James version of the Bible, was translated in 1611. It was published in 1611. It was translated in the years leading up to that, right? That the um, the Geneva Bible was first translated in the 1520s, right? Now, at this time, these people, not understanding the history of the Anglo-Saxon and Germanic and Celtic tribes, not understanding the origins of the Anglo-Saxon and Germanic and Celtic people, they thought that they were outsiders. They really thought that. That's the blindness, the blindness that God promised would happen to Israel, to the people of Israel, in their dispersion. They thought they were outsiders, but they knew that somehow they belonged in the Christian picture. They knew that in their hearts. Well, because they thought they were outsiders, they actually were forced to translate the New Testament in a universalist manner. They were forced to do that, because they had to somehow include themselves. In the 1800s, with, with the advent of British archaeology and the discoveries, and, and these are, are solid discoveries in, in British archaeology if you actually study the Assyrian tablets and inscriptions and, and realize, and, and hand in hand with the Greek and Roman classics, and realize that the Saka that the Sake, the Saxons, originated in the cities of the Medes when the Israels were dispersed, and, and connect the dots properly in ancient history and understand that the Phoenicians, the Celts, the Scythians, the Germanic people actually did come from the dispersed children of Israel, which could not have been known in the 1600s because they just didn't have that archaeology. Uh, I mean, it's in the classics, believe me, but the archaeology really helps one put it together and cements the, the, um, the, the inferences and, and that can be made from the classics. Well, 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 it's in there, but they just didn't have that scholarship. And, and that scholarship and those discoveries led to the dawn of the British Israel movement in, in Britain in the 1800s. Well, the, the archaeology is so important in our history in other regards. Correct me if I'm mistaken, but a, as recently as about, what, 150 years ago, they thought that the Trojan War was just a legend. It was apocryphal, and they, they found the city of Troy. 
Well, well, yeah, you know, there's still people that even dispute that. Yeah, you know, and and Troy, the Trojan War is a historical fact, and they have found through archaeology a lot of um, a, a, a lot of material that does lead to an understanding that the circumstances of the Mediterranean at the time that the Trojan War could have been fought certainly allow for the Trojan for, for Homer's stories about the Trojan War being true. Yes, that's absolutely true. So, so there's, a, there's, um, yeah, you know, there's a lot to be learned by archaeology when you take the archaeology honestly and and put it together with the scripture and and the history and the classics. What you end up with is Christian identity. Right. The and, main problem right now, though, as I see it, the lands of the um, former Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. We have very limited access to those lands. We just can't go into Egypt or occupied Palestine or Lebanon and start digging. Those lands are all, all those lands are owned by the enemy now. So that will hinder our people's archaeological efforts. Wouldn't you agree? Well, well absolutely. A- absolutely. No, there's no doubt. And, and not only that, but a lot of that stuff like Egypt, that, this, um, that the Israeli Antiquities Authority... You can't put a shovel in the ground and let it, without a rabbi breathing down your neck. Yeah, in Palestine, you can't do it. And and, and everything found in the ground is sifted and filtered and, and and actually twisted and perverted through the, the the Jewish sieve of interpretation. And it has to be that way, or or you're not going to put a shovel in the ground again. And the same thing in Egypt. What, where a lot of the, the Egyptians have basically everything locked down and, and only certain information is allowed to get out and, and anything that would be discrediting to, to the idea that today's modern Egyptians are also the Egyptians of antiquity, it is very difficult to get out of Egypt. That They don't want to hear it. And, and it's the, the Jews, that they've got archaeology locked down. But in the 19th century, it wasn't like that. In the 19th century, it was English and German and American and French archaeologists and anthropologists who, who were making the studies, and, and, and the, um, the data was interpreted through a Christian or a, or a more or less secular lens and, and um, non-religious lens, and, and it was a different world, and, and the data was a lot more reliable, actually. What we're today, it's it's all perverted to, through the big July machine. Well, well, to finish addressing what what Graeber's last mentioned criticisms of Paul, that, you know, Graeber quotes Jude ver, Jude verse four, which says, "For certain men crept in unawares," and he tries to level, you know, this this rifle at Paul and and. Paul's nearly, he, he ignores Paul's nearly identical words in Galatians 2.4, where he says, and, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in, in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, where Paul warns, after my departing, from, meaning from Asia Minor, shall grievous wolves enter in among you. Uh, I mean, Jude and Paul, it, they're absolutely synchronous, right? right? There's total synchronicity between Paul and all of the writers of, of the minor epistles. And before the end of this presentation tonight, we're going to see a lot of that. 
Well, would you like to read Graver's arguments in Part H? All right, Part H. Graver states, the Gentiles. We note that Paul tells us in Acts 13, 46-47 that, quote, the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, quote. And we also read in Romans 11:13, for I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. Let us also read Romans 15:16, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. There is no place in scriptures or secular history that tells us where Paul received this authority, except by his own claim, and that of his companion Luke, who was a Gentile. Now, I wonder, is there any authority in any, any part of this country that can tell us how um, Graber became a doctor, except <laughs> by his own claim? Now, let us read what Jesus had to say in this matter. We read Jesus commanding his disciples in Matthew 10, 5, 6, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the white Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, Germanic people of the world, the true Israelites of the Bible. We also read in Matthew 15:24, But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, who, who are these lost sheep? Doesn't Graber understand? Well, 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 right. Graber is, um, well, well, finish reading it now. All right. Very clearly, by the words of Jesus himself, he tells us that he did not come for the Gentiles. Why? Because Jesus came for salvation for his children that had the original sin imputed upon them and thereby had become prisoners of Satan after death. The original sin was only imputed upon the seed of Adam and not upon the Gentiles or Jews. I am sure the learned apostle Paul knew this, so who are you going to believe, Jesus or the professed? Apostle Paul, I, I wonder. This is so. This is so calumnious that this this is just treacherous, right? That this is um. Yeah, he he's assuming Gentiles are, are non-Adamic people. I'm concerned here too that he says that all the children that had you know original sin became prisoners of Satan after death. Is he contending then that Elijah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that they all had, you know, well, they all went to hell? That's a really Catholic viewpoint, right? That, that's a really Catholic view. And, it's explicitly and written that Elijah ascended into heaven, isn't it? It's absolutely inaccurate, and, it, and it's a really Catholic viewpoint, right? And that's, that, that's, not, that's okay. Let's kick that aside. That the, um, why is Graver ins, insisting that Gentiles, that, you know, Gentile is not a racial thing, right? Uh, I mean, the word gentilis is, but the way Gentiles is used in, in the mainstream, it, 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 it's separate from the idea of race, right, for the, for the most part. The, the word Gentile it is a translation. It's not even a translation. It's a, it's a perversion put into the New Testament, and, and, and Paul never used the word, right? He never used the term Gentile. And Graeber is again taking mainstream mistranslations and, and attributing them to Paul of Tarsus. And Paul never used the word Gentile. He used the word nation. He used the Greek word ethnos, what, which we would consider to be a nation. Here in, in, in this paragraph, Graeber's 
is Graver's biggest and most obvious lie. First, Graver criticizes Paul for going to so-called Gentiles. Now, the word Gentile is a word that no true scholar should even use. A true scholar should not use the word Gentile because it doesn't exist in Greek and it didn't exist in English uh, until these King James Version or, or perhaps Geneva Bible Version. I don't know when it first appeared. But when, when, when the translators decided that they should take a Latin word and bring it into English to create a false dichotomy between Jews and Gentiles that never existed in, in, in the scripture in the manner in which they apply it today. And, and in the 15 and 1600s, of course. Graeber admits that the true Israelites of the Bible are the white, Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, and Germanic peoples of the world. Of, of the world. He admits that, that though he must have, of, um, it, well, well, I'm, I'm going to let that go. Graeber here is right by saying that, but he fails to mention that Paul wrote to the Galatians, which are better, well, which Galatians is better written Gauls, as, as Graeber uses that term, because the, the Galatians were called Gauls by the Romans. Paul mentioned the Scythians. It, it's the Galatians. Galatians in Greek, the, the, the actual Greek original Galatahi was synonymous with Celts, right? The Greeks used it as a synonym for Celts. The Galatians are Celts. And, and the Scythians are the parent races of the Anglo-Saxon, Celtic, and Germanic people. And, and that's demonstrated by history. Paul went through Asia Minor, which in his time was inhabited by Trojans, Phoenicians, Romans, Danans, and Dorian Greeks. All of those can be shown to have been descended from the Israelites uh, of the Old Testament during a thousand years between the sojourn in Egypt and the Assyrian deportations. They didn't descend from the people of the Assyrian deportations. That's where the, the, the Scythians and, and, and a lot of the Celts came from. So, so it's you know, there were Thracians and Ionians and, and, and other Japhethite. They were Japhethite tribes in those regions. But for the most part, those regions were settled by dispersed Israelites. Paul went to Greece. Greece was inhabited by Phoenicians and Danon and Dorian and Greeks. They were all descended from the Israelites. There were also Ionian Greeks there who were Japhethites. But for the most part, the Greeks were Israelites. Paul went to Italy. Italy was settled by Greeks and Phoenicians and Trojan Romans, and they all descended from the Israelites. Paul wanted to, and, and when I wrote this in 2005, I, I was under the assumption that he did, and, and with a lot more study, I realized that Paul never went to Spain. That's a British-Israel pipe dream. But he wanted to go to Spain, and Spain was inhabited by Phoenicians, who were Israelites, Tartesians, who were Japhethites, and Celts, who were Israelites. And those people, the Phoenicians and the Celts, are descended from the Israelites. That can be proven in ancient history and in the ancient inscriptions. So except for the tribes of Japheth and other people, such as the Etruscans, who were Shemites and, 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 and descended from the Lydians, and, and the Lydians came from the Shemitic tribes, but they weren't Israelites. Well, well, except for those Japhethites and, and the other Shemites in Europe, all of the people who Paul went to, all of the people who he wrote to, all of the people who he addressed in his epistles were dispersed Israelites. They were the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
They were the nations. Paul never used the term Gentiles. They were the nations which sprung from Abraham's seed. In Romans chapter 4, Paul defines the faith of Abraham. He defines the faith of Abraham as the belief, as Abraham's belief that God was true and that many nations would spring from his loins, from his seed, from his offspring. Paul knew where those nations were, and that is where Paul went. And it could be established that everybody Paul wrote to, every place Paul went, he encountered Israelites of the dispersion. The, um, the idea that where Christ in the gospel wanted the apostles to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and not to the Gentiles, meaning the nations, and not to the Samaritans, it has to be understood that the Apostles did not know, and, and to, that, you know, Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 proves this, that the apostles did not know the identity of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But Christ told them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they would have taken that to mean to go to their fellow Israelites in Judea. That's how they would have accepted, because they didn't understand the dispersion. Christ told them not to go to the Gentiles, meaning not to go to the other nations, because the people of even dispersed Israelite nations were alienated from Christ, and the apostles couldn't have went to those people because Christ was not reconciled to those people until he was crucified and resurrected. The apostles would not have understood that in the Christian identity context. They would have taken those words of Christ to mean that they should go to their fellow Judean Israelites. And, and that's a totally different context from the Christian identity context, which Paul did understand, that these people of all these dispersed nations that he was going to were actually ancient dispersed Israelites. And all of Paul's letters prove that. Graeber doesn't understand. Graeber evidently kind of understands the racial um, context of the covenants, but he doesn't understand the history, and he doesn't understand the dispersions. If Paul of Tarsus wanted to pervert Christianity, then Paul of Tarsus would have had gone to the Hottentots. He would have gone to the Egyptians. He would have gone to the Dravidians in India. He would have gone to the Arabs. He would have gone to, to all the people that were known to the Romans and Greeks that were not descendants of the children of Israel. But, you know, Paul of Tarsus never did that. He only went to nations that, Christian, that, that identity Christians who know their history, can demonstrate descended from the children of Israel. Paul didn't go to any nations that did not descend from the children of Israel. There was no Paul in Egypt. 
There was no Paul in China. There was no Paul in India, Arabia. There was no Paul in Ethiopia. There was no Paul. There's no epistle of Paul to the Hutus. There's no epistle of Paul to the Hottentots or the Tutsis. Those places would have been much safer for Paul. They would have been out of the way of Jewish per- persecution, and they would have offered much more of an opportunity to pollute Christianity if that was Paul's mission. And Paul did not go there. Paul brought the message of Christianity to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and Graber is just being absolutely 100% deceptive. So he's being purposefully obtuse. Absolutely. This is, uh, I mean, the, the entire accusation is filled with, it, it's inverted, it's turned inside out, and it's filled with lies. And, and it's incredible that th- this is the material. This is, th- this Graber material, I'm not, uh, I didn't pull this Graber material out of thin air in 2005. Actually, this th- this Graber paper is based on a letter I wrote to Ralph Daigle, a Christian identity pastor in Michigan who turned Paul Basher in 2003. And this is the material that these people in Michigan, that the Church of Christ in Israel, that I was ordained into, that Graber was a member of, okay, that Frank Smith in Maine was, was the bishop of and turned Paul Basher, uh, okay, this is the material that they used. This is their ammunition against Paul, and it fails at every argument. It fails. It fails miserably. Graver is clearly perverting Scripture, taking things out of context, misrepresenting Paul, accepting Judeo-Christian translations. This is the, 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 the stuff that this is the, the material that these people used that drove them to Paul bashing. So, so this isn't. Uh, I just didn't take some of the worst stuff that 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 um that some of the worst material cases against Paul. I, I took what these that these identity Christians were actually using, and, and it's incredible. It doesn't hold any water at all. It's it, it's it's incredible that anybody would fall for this garbage. And it is garbage. Graber is garbage. But this is what they're using. And, and this material brought a lot of identity Christians to Paul bashing, even though it's, it's total garbage. It, it's incredible to me, but it has to be addressed because it, this thinking is so prevalent among identity Christians. And, and it's, the work of, it's the work of the devil. It's the, the, the devil meaning the Jews, right? Well, would you like to read the next section? Absolutely. Section I. Graber states genealogy. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 1.4, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which he misspelled, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, but he's talking about the idea that someone like Caesar would claim to be the son of Mars, which is a vain genealogy. Obviously, genealogies such as so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Matthew chapter 1, this is the book of um, the generations of Jesus, right? I mean, it, it tells the entire ancestry and heraldry of Jesus Christ. They spend the entire chapter doing that. So obviously, genealogy is important, and it's not to be shunned. 
He's referring to those, those pagan genealogies, though. Would you agree, Bill? Well, well, right, and, and that's part of my answer. And, and oh, okay, I'll, I'll just continue, then, and we'll get to your answer. Again, we read in Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies, which he again misspelled, and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. If this be true, why did Almighty God give us the examples in the Old Testament? He misspelled the word testament. I just thought that was noteworthy. And why was the genealogy of Jesus Christ documented in Matthew chapter 1, reckoning Jesus Christ back to Adam? Did Jesus ever tell us that genealogies were vain? The Old Testament gives us 12 times that the children of God were reckoned by genealogy and purged of any and all unadulterated seed. Read Ezra 2.62. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but they were not found. Therefore were they as polluted from the priesthood, people that do not understand identity cannot comprehend this truth. And I wonder, what can this man know about genealogy since he didn't spell the word right once and he spelled it wrong different times in different instances? So this guy has no real claim to scholarship. Well, well, no, absolutely not. There's a difference between um, saying that genealogies are vain and, and telling um, Timothy, not to give heed to endless genealogies. The children of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, had no legitimate endless genealogies because when they were driven off from their homeland, when their cities were destroyed by the Assyrians, when their cities were destroyed by the Babylonians, their genealogies were destroyed. Their records were destroyed. The, the ancient Levitical records were all destroyed. The books of the, the books of Kings and Chronicles are basically only um, accounts that were patched together from whatever records survived. They're, they're not the real Chronicles. They're not the original Chronicles. They're, they're very scanty accounts that were patched together from records that survived, from, from whatever accounts the people of the 5th the and 6th and 4th centuries B.C. Could, could conjure up and and get together and, and try to patch up. And that's very clear from the books themselves. That that's very that can be demonstrated from the books themselves. They are not the original chronicles. They are surviving fragments of the original chronicles. That the um Paul's exhortations to Titus and Timothy concerning fables and endless genealogies which is how it's phrased in 1 Timothy 1.4, or foolish questions and genealogies in Titus 3.9. These were not, as Graeber insinuates, admonitions by Paul to forego or to ignore concerns over one's racial purity. To the contrary, as I translate the passages, okay, these are my own translations, they're in the Christogenian New Testament, I can defend every word of the Greek, Paul calls Titus, a purely bred child, according to the common belief. Why would Paul call Titus that? Because Titus was a Greek. Titus wasn't a Hebrew. He was a lost Israelite Greek. He had no true genealogical records in his possession. Paul's basically telling him he's a purely bred child, according to the common belief. In other words, you look white enough. That's what he's telling him. Of course, an ancient Greek really didn't have as big a concern of some sort of alien admixture as a, a modern 
American. Okay, but but well, I, who were the Greeks that had the opportunity to mix with? Well, well, right. I, I mean, there were Canaanites spread throughout the ancient world, but that that doesn't mean that everybody was a Canaanite, right? It it means that a small percentage of them probably or may have had some Canaanite blood, and, and that's just a fact of of our history and our life. The Greeks, the Phoenicians, they had slaves. They had Canaanite slaves, and, and they had them from for for and brought them everywhere. Now, to what extent those slaves were able to mingle with the the um, the ruling population, of course, is a different story. And the Greeks were very, the ancient Greeks and the Phoenicians were, for the most part, very racially conscious wherever they went. Well, well um, that's what Paul calls Titus, a purely bred child according to the common belief. And that's what the Greek says. Now... That's all Titus had to go on because he had no ancient Israelite genealogical records which of the sort which Ezra and Nehemiah were using to determine who was a true Israelite and who was not. Those things were lost. Paul also addressed Timothy as a purely bred child in the faith. And that's my translation of part of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Why would Paul address him like that? In order to reassure him that he was a legitimate child of God, because Timothy, and this is in the scriptures, was actually half Greek and half Judean. The Greeks or the Judeans, from the Pharisaical point of view, would have considered Timothy a bastard. Paul, knowing that the Greeks were really dispersed Israelites, knew that Timothy was Israelite on both sides of his family. And that's why he's calling him a purely bred child in the faith, reassuring him that he's not a bastard, because the Pharisees of the time of Christ would have considered Timothy a bastard because he was half Greek. Paul knew better. Paul understood the histories of the ancient dispersions. That's why he went and preached the gospel to the Greeks. To comprehend Paul's admonitions concerning genealogies, we must understand that Paul is writing to Greeks. He's not writing to Judeans. He's not writing to Israelites who had their genealogies, even though we know through Josephus that the Judeans really didn't have official genealogies at the time of Christ. Paul is writing to Greeks. He's writing to men schooled in Greek thought and Greek literature. And he's writing on Greek terms. If anyone has ever read Homer, and I have, or Hesiod, and the many other Greek poets and playwrights, and even otherwise respectable historians such as Strabo or Herodotus or Diodorus Siculus, all of these men often repeat the fables of, of Homer and the poets and, and Hesiod. Only by reading all of those things can one really comprehend and appreciate the Greek idea of genealogy and Paul's admonitions here. Paul's not condemning the likes of Ezra. He's not condemning the, the Levitical record keepers of ancient Israel. He's talking to Greeks on Greek terms. And, and that's another thing Graeber didn't understand and condemn Paul for, where Paul said that I spoke to the Judeans as a Judean and, and to the Greeks as a Greek. Well, Paul was educated 
both in the Hebrew literature and the Greek literature, he was in a peculiar, he had the peculiar talents that were needed for the time. He could speak to the Greeks from a Greek viewpoint because he was educated in Greek literature. He could speak to the Judeans from the Judean viewpoint because he was educated in the scriptures. And Paul was peculiarly capable of being the guy who would bring the gospel from Judean Palestine to the dispersion of Israelites, lost Israel abroad, who were actually Greeks and Romans, because Paul was educated on both sides and highly educated. Paul is not condemning the ancient Hebrew record keepers. Rather, he is condemning the likes of Hesiod. If you ever read Hesiod's Theogony, you would understand what a vain genealogy is. And the many similar works found among the Greek poets, which account for the races of men in various genealogies where those races are said to have descended from various pagan gods and goddesses, such as Zeus, Apollo, Athena, Heracles. Those accounts were quite intricate, and they were repeated by the poets, and they were repeated by the historians. They were absolutely vain. Imagine Paul bringing the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, telling the people that he was going to in Europe, the Romans, the Greeks, the Galatians, that they were descended from the seed of Abraham, as he tells the Romans in Romans chapter 4, from, from, the, 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 from the children of Isaac, as he tells the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4. Imagine telling these pagans that they were descended from these ancient Hebrew patriarchs, and the pagans are going to contend with you. No, we're not. We're descended from Zeus or Apollo. We have these genealogies in our poets. That's what he's warning Timothy and Titus about. And if you don't read the classics, if you don't understand what the Greeks knew or what the Greeks thought they knew, then you can't comprehend these scriptures to properly understand the Bible. You have to study language. You have to study history. You have to study archaeology. You have to study the other literature of the periods of the Bible. And if you don't do that, you're going to be susceptible to the lies of Jaime Graber. You're going to be susceptible to this, these lies and these false accusations that he's throwing out there. As for tensions and strivings about the law, I'm sorry, you were going to say something. I was just going to say that this guy's scholarship is seriously lacking, and it's possible we, we might consider that he's well-intentioned and he's just an idiot who doesn't know any better, but some of the things he's doing that he's engaging in, they seem to be purposeful deceptions that he really should know what he's doing, and he's consciously choosing to convey wrong information which would tend to suggest that he has some sort of agenda he's pursuing and that it's not just that he's a bad scholar with a, a high school education and he, he doesn't know one thing from another in Scripture. It, it seems that, you know, he's, he's read enough Scripture to at least form basic doctrines and 
theologies and he's trying to vigorously pursue this theological agenda or a political agenda or maybe a personal agenda, and he's using his knowledge of Scripture to pursue that agenda. Well, well absolutely, but his knowledge of Scripture is very shallow. Right. He has an agenda, and, and, and um, yeah, you know, there's a world of difference between actual study, hard study, and casual reading. There's a world of difference. And if you've actually studied the Scripture, you can expose those who haven't very quickly, even without the Christian identity perspective. That the, as for contentions and strivings about the law, Paul warns Titus not to get caught up in the same such deceit which we find in the Talmud, which is a reflection of the thought of Judaism in Judea of this very period. Paul's not warning Titus about the law. He's warning Titus about contentions and strivings about the law. He's warning Titus about the same deceit which, which, which those Judeans had which wrote the Talmud, who later wrote the Talmud, who, who were primarily Canaanites and Edomites who had rejected the gospel in Christ. So, 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 so there's a big difference between warning about the law and, and warning about contentions and strivings about the law. That Graeber is being absolutely deceitful in many ways here. I just wanted to say, too, it's written that the, in Jeremiah that the law is in the heart of our people, and the, the Jews have never had any law other than their own law, Satan's law in their hearts. And even if they hadn't written the Talmud, it would still be in their heart, wouldn't it? I mean, Jewish behavior would exist in every single Jew. So even without a physical hard copy Talmud, the Talmud exists in, in the Jewish mind. Well, well, absolutely. What we might, you know, I made a note at this point in my presentation in 2005 that at this point I had already written to Ralph Daigle, and, and this was originally a letter written to Christian Identity and Paul bashing pastor Ralph Daigle. I had already written him 16 handwritten pages, and I made an appeal to him here that he should understand by this point that Graeber is just wrong about many things, and sadly Ralph was not convinced and remained steadfast in his error. And I don't mind talking about it and mentioning the man's name. I hope he listens. I know he reads the Saxon Messenger. I see him open emails. Um, go ahead, Brian, and present Part J. Part J, Graeber states the law, the doctrine of the professed Apostle Paul, very emphatically negates the laws of God. By what authority? We read in Romans 1.17, For therein is righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Parenthesis, not the law. Now, that's Graeber's comment there. He's claiming that if, if Paul states the righteous live by faith, the implication is not by the law, but Paul doesn't make that implication. He just states that the righteous live by faith. He never does. Abraham had faith, and for that reason he kept the laws and the statutes and the commandments of Yahweh before the law given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And Abraham's credited with that in the book of Genesis, keeping Yahweh's commandments and statutes. And that's before the codification of the law at Mount Sinai. So, so we see that God's law has always been without race, right? That's we, part of our faith. I'm sorry, go on. Continuing with Graeber's words, 
Here we need to point out how Paul many times misquotes the prophets of the Old Testament. This is quoted from Habakkuk 2.4, which reads, The just shall live by his faith. Again, Paul says in Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Certainly we can understand this because the law was not given to the Gentiles, but neither did Jesus Christ offer salvation to the Gentiles because they do not need it, for the original sin was not imputed upon them. So, Graeber's theology here is absolutely, it's so horrible in so many ways it probably can't be fully addressed in a book. I'm having trouble understanding his theology. It's very incoherent. I would call it a, a poorly strung together buffet theology. Well, that's a good assessment. It seems that he believes that there are two seed lines, but Jesus came for the Jews, and since they rejected and killed him, he then decided to go offer it to the other people who yeah, right. never had a relationship He came for the God. satanic seed line first. <laughs> <laughs> right, Graeber's theology is a patchwork of mixed Christian identity, Judeo-Christian, Jewish theology. It's all kind of, um, it's all kind of mushed together, and it doesn't make any sense at all. Next, we're going to learn this guy's a dispensationalist. Ephesians 2.15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Romans 4.15.16. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Paul is telling us that if we repeal the laws of God, then there can be no sin. That is the same as if we repealed all criminal law, then we would have no crime. What does Jesus tell us concerning the law of God? Jesus tells us in Matthew 5:17 through 18, Think not that I am come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Has heaven and earth passed, or did Jesus change his mind? We also read in John 14:15, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And again in 1 John 2, 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Who do you believe, Jesus or the professed apostle Paul? Paul tells us over and over again that the law was negated by the cross. If that is true, why did Jesus Christ not give us one word of evidence that this is so? Well, where does Paul say the law was negated on the cross? Well, well, he he really doesn't, in essence. Graeber makes a treacherous attack upon Paul's views concerning the law. Graeber states that Paul, and I'm quoting Graeber, right? You just read it. Paul very emphatically negates the laws of God. Now, that's a vile lie, because Paul clearly states in Romans 3.31, from the King James, do we make void the law through faith? God forbid, yeah, we establish the law. That's Paul's words. So Graeber must be taking other of Paul's statements out of context. Graeber is very short of understanding. And and so that you may see what I speak of here, I'm going to take the time to explain a few things concerning the law under the New Covenant, which is highly misunderstood. First, as we can witness by history, the Levitical laws in the Pentateuch are based upon, but are not a perfect image of Yahweh's law. And one example of that is Matthew 19.8, 
where we see that Yahweh permitted Moses a law for divorce, but it was not that way from the beginning. In other words, the ability to divorce and remarry was not God's original intention for his creation. These Levitical laws certainly had their purpose, and they still do. We see today that the greater part of the enemies of God, the seed of the serpent, have trapped themselves in the Old Testament law, not having the faith of the anointed. They have voluntarily condemned themselves. This is um, a theological argument, right? And Yahweh told us in Jeremiah 8.8, this is what Jeremiah 8.8 says, how will you say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? In vain have the scribes used a false pen. In other words, there are lies in the law. So we can't say that we are wise because we have it. That's what Jeremiah 8.8 is saying. There are, we can't go back and unwind it, but there are things written in the law of God that were not intended at Mount Sinai because the scribes have vainly used a false pen. So there are, there are changes, there are perversions in the law as we see it in the Pentateuch today. We don't know what they are. Both Paul and James, as we shall see, make allusions to the fact that the enemies of God have trapped themselves into the law. And one of those allusions is right in Galatians chapter 4. Both Jew and Muslim, if we compare those allusions to history, both Jew today and Muslim, and we know that most Jews and most Muslims are descended from mixed races, from the Canaanites, from the Edomites. They're nearly all descendants of Cain. But today, both the Jew and the Muslim can claim to believe and accept the Old Testament and the law, and they're all condemned by it because none of them have kept it. They're all violations of it. Bill, a, a quick interjection here. The Koran the has three different teachings on the creation of man. First, it claims that Adam was made from dust, and then it claims that Adam was made from a clot of blood that God dropped down on the earth, and then it claims that Adam was made from water. So we would think, though, in, in order to be a holy and inspired book, that it should at least be consistent within itself. Well, yeah, the Koran is basically Jewish garbage, right? It really is. Now, now, it is certain that Yahshua Christ came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He came to fulfill both the law and the prophets. So let's see what the prophets say concerning the new covenant, which all agree that Yahshua Christ himself compacted with the children of Israel. Okay? Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, which my covenant they break. Well, let's think about that covenant that he made with our fathers. The covenant was based upon the keeping of the law at Mount Sinai, wasn't it? The written law, right? Now the response to that is, but this shall be the covenant that I will make, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Isaiah 51, 7, second witness. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness. Now, Isaiah chapter 51 is in those last chapters 
those last 25 chapters of Isaiah, which are written to the Israelites in dispersion to the isles of the West. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Jeremiah 32, verses 39 and 40. And I will give them one heart and one way, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will put my fear in their hearts. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh the stony heart representing the stony tablets which the law was written on, right? And will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances, but not the points of the written law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourselves to Yahweh and take away the foreskins of your heart, not the foreskin of your penis, which is codified in the written law. Now it should be evident that if the laws of Yahweh were to be written in our hearts, a promise made only to the children of Israel, then there is no longer a need for the written Levitical law. For the matters of the law encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, which Christ repeated and which he said were his commandments, which Yahweh himself illustrated, Mark chapter 10, Luke chapter 18, are common sense to our race. They're written in our hearts. Paul explains these things in Hebrews chapter 7. He explains these things in Romans 7, 6. And he explains it in Romans 2.29. In Romans 2.29, Paul explains that we keep the law in spirit and not the letter. The Jews pretend to keep the law in a letter. Yet their Talmud is filled with many devices of reasoning and vile ways to get around the law. Note that even modern, in modern litigation, according to the laws of man, that courts often cite the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law and realize that Paul is explaining that same thing in his epistle to the Romans in Romans chapter 2. which I will cite momentarily. It should be obvious that the removal of the yoke of the, the Levitical law is a matter of prophecy along with the New Covenant, and it's mentioned by the apostles in Acts chapter 15. For Yahshua Christ says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Paul explains this very thing over and over, but he uses different methods for Romans and different methods for Hebrews, since they have different perspectives. Where Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, and this is what he says, and this is what the Greek says, for when the nations, which have not the law, because they were cast off Israelites, do by nature the things contained in the law, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, that's what Paul tells the Romans in Romans chapter 2. Is Paul not demonstrating that the Romans, who are themselves a part of lost Israel, are indeed Israelites to whom those promises were made? Of course Paul's demonstrating that. Of course he's referring directly to those passages 
in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and, and, and the other scriptures that say that the law will be written in our hearts. And that's what he's telling the Romans. And he's telling the Romans that they demonstrate that by having formed a society based on the rule of law. And they may not have been the perfect laws of God, but they were as good as any, any, any equitable laws that we've had that have their origin in men. And they fulfilled the Ten Commandments. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder. They were all codified into Roman law. Compare Paul's statement in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 with the words of the prophets quoted above. And, and also where Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men, manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone, but in fleshly tablets of the heart. Paul's making those same allusions to those same scriptures. Paul is not, is Paul not showing the fulfillment of the words of the prophets?